Well, like she said, I serve in Navigating Motherhood, and I'm there on Thursdays. And there was a particular Thursday I was there, and I always have my little four-year-old with me. You may have seen him running around, little blondie, looks nothing like me. And uh, we were leaving the sanctuary and walking out the big double doors, and it just started pouring down rain. I mean, just downpour. And so we ran out to the car, and there's this big flash of lightning. And we get in the car, we're soaking wet, and drive out of the parking lot, and my son says to me from the back seat, he says, I want to block the rain. And so I said, what do you mean block the rain? You mean like keep it from falling from the sky at all? And he says, yes, I want to block the rain. And I said, well, you can't do that, buddy. No one can block the rain. And, and he said, well, what about the lightning? And I said, no, you can't do that either. You can't block the lightning. And he said, well, can anybody block the rain or the lightning? And I said, no, no one can do that. The only one is God. If, if God wanted to block it, I guess he could. He's choosing to have this rain fall today and this lightning today. And so that was the end of the discussion, but I, I kind of started thinking, where is this coming from? And then I remembered that the week before when we were there on a Thursday, it had been Sunny, and he had wanted to stay and play with some of his little KBC buddies in the sandbox. And we unfortunately had so many errands to run that day, and I said, you know what, buddy, we can't stay today, but we'll stay next week and play in the sandbox. So I think in his little mind, he was thinking, I was supposed to play in the sandbox today, and it's raining, and if I could block that rain, I'd be in that sandbox right now with my buddies, right? And so we can see how little minds work and think it's kind of cute and kind of naive to think that they would think that they could actually truly block weather. But I think we also can get in that mindset at times. We have plans for our lives. We have ideas about the way things should go, the way things should look, the way things should be. And then oftentimes God's plans don't match up with our plans. And we too can be guilty of saying in so many words, I want to block the rain. You want to push through with your plans. But when we try to control things, we have to realize that like the rain that day, God's plans are not going to change. And when we try to control things and push through with our plans, we will see how it can be so disastrous for us. And we're going to see that in our passage today in 2 Samuel. We're going to open our Bibles to 2 Samuel 17, and I'm going to split our text up into two big chunks today. So we're going to start out with verses 1 through 14a. It starts in verse 1. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic, and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king, and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Then Absalom said, Call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, You know that your father and his men are mighty men, and that they are enraged like a bear, robbed of her cubs in a field. Besides, your father is an expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, 
There's been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant men, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba, as the sand by the sea for multitude, and that you go to battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found, and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground. And of him and all the men with him, not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. Well, a little background of where we are in 2 Samuel. Uh, right now, Absalom is in the midst of his takeover. He's trying to take over the throne of his father, David. And he has acquired quite a following already. As we can see in the text today, he has the elders of Israel with him, among other people. And one of those people is Ahithophel. And Ahithophel, if you don't know, was the chief advisor to David. He was his chief counsel. This is who David would go to when he had to make big decisions, and he would go to Ahithophel for good, sound advice. And Ahithophel has jumped ship and is now in the camp of, um, of Absalom. Now, Ahithophel was known to be very, very wise. He had quite a reputation. In fact, in our chapter preceding ours today, in chapter 16, verse 31, this is how he's described. Now, in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was if one had consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. Well, if you were known to be so wise that when people came to you, it was equal to going to the word of God, you can imagine how confident you would be. Um, this is quite an esteem to have, and it says that it was known. So Ahithophel probably knew he had this reputation. So going into this meeting with Absalom, he's probably very quite confident in the plan that he has in his mind that he's going to unveil to Absalom. And scholars believe that Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. So as you can imagine, when all the drama went down back, to, back, um, back in chapter 11 and 12, he was not happy of what went on with David and Bathsheba. So unlike some of the other people who have just jumped to Ahithophel's camp because he's maybe the new guy in town, the shiny object of the, of the time, Ahithophel's there for more personal reasons. For him, this is personal, and for him, this is his revenge and payback. But let's notice um, about his plan. One thing about his plan is that it's very simple. It's very short compared to Hushai's plan. He says, we're going to gather a small amount of people, we're going to go in tonight, strike right away, and we're only going to kill David. Boom. Done. Very simple. But notice who the star of his plan is. I'm going to reread verses 1 through 4. Let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic, and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king, and I will bring, all, bring him, I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. Me, 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 I, I, I. Ahithophel puts himself in this lead role in this battle. And if we know anything about battles then and even now, whoever leads the troops into battle is the one that gets the glory. 
And we saw this played out um, pretty significantly back in 1 Samuel between Saul and David. We remember back in 1 Samuel, verse 18, 7, um, it says, the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. So this was a big deal, um, having this glory. This is, what, this is what ignited Saul's jealousy and anger towards David and what eventually contributed to David's first exile. So Ahithophel, in his wisdom, is putting himself in this spot so that he can get the glory and the revenge that he seeks. Well, the thing about Ahithophel's plan is it actually was a really good plan for what it was devised to be. So he first says and describes David as weary and discouraged. And we learned from Bethany last week that David was, in fact, weary and discouraged. He was lonely. He was depressed. He was not on his A-game. This was not the David we know from 1 Samuel. He's a much different David. And the second thing he says is that they're going to attack that night. And David had no plans to cross the Jordan that night. So if this plan were to move forward and they attacked that night, they would capture David. And David would probably be killed that night. So this plan was actually a pretty good plan. And it looks like um, Absalom's going to choose it, despite the fact that Ahithophel made himself in the star role. He made himself the quarterback, right, of this plan. But then it looks like he's going to go forward. He says it's right in his eyes. It looks like we're going to move forward, and all of a sudden, he has a change of heart, and he says, let's get a second opinion. Let's call in Hushai. It's kind of a strange turn of events. And he calls in Hushai. And some history on Hushai, back in chapter 15, he met with David, and David asked him to go to Jerusalem and be a spy for him. David wanted him to report back to him all that Ahithophel was counseling and all the goings-on of what Absalom was doing so that he could have a one-up. So Hushai is there as a spy, but Absalom doesn't know this, and he's trusting Hushai, and he asks for his opinion on Ahithophel's plan, and if he doesn't think it's a good plan, what should we do? So Hushai says that the plan is no good, and then he goes on to describe David in a much different light. I mean, he goes on and on and on. He talks about how David is fierce. He's a fierce warrior. He's strong. He's valiant. The men that are with him... He even goes on to describe um, him and his men as enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs. So I don't know if you've ever watched a nature show and actually seen a scene like that where there's a mama bear, and that's where we get the term mama bear, right, and her cubs. It's an ugly scene. You would not want to be there around a mama bear and her cubs. This is fierce, and this is far, a far, far cry from weary and discouraged. So he plants a seed of doubt in Absalom's mind. But then he goes on to buy David some time. He says, we should gather all these men. It's going to take some time to gather all the men from Dan to Beersheba. So this will buy David some time. And then he puts Absalom in that star role. That's the biggest difference here. Absalom is the star. He says that he should go into battle, right? Um, He says this, but my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba as the sand by the sea for multitude and that you go to battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground and of him and all the men with him, not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. 
I love the imagery and the analogy he uses. It really paints a picture for what this is going to look like. And then on, on top of the fact that he puts Absalom in that lead role, you can imagine that Absalom sitting here listening to this and visualizing this and saying, yes, yes, put me in, coach. I want to be there. Hushai appeals to Absalom's ego, his pride. We all know that Absalom is a prideful man. We've heard how he has this vanity. He's a very good-looking man. He has these amazing locks of hair, which come into play later in 2 Samuel. The thing about Absalom and Ahithophel that we can notice is that while Ahithophel was wise in his own eyes and Absalom was swayed by his ego, neither of these men ever inquired of the Lord. Neither of these men stop and even think about what they're doing or thinking. They are so blind to their own pride, truly blind. But ladies, we cannot be blind to pride. We absolutely need to know where our pride is, find it, seek it out, and destroy it. So point number one for taking notes is identify where pride resides in you. And it can be easy to look at people like Ahithophel and Absalom and say, well, I'm not like that. I don't, I don't boast. I don't self-promote myself. I'm not driven by ego. I stop and pray and ask God what I should do. And when we compare ourselves on that lateral comparison, that, that may be true on a lateral comparison, but the fact is that we all have pride because pride is not always manifested in that outward boastful way. Pride oftentimes is very hard to detect because pride is really at the root of every act of disobedience that we commit. Because before we disobey God, the first thing that we do is turn. We turn from God to ourselves. We literally say, you know, God, I know what your word says. I know your plan. I know you want what's best for me. But right now, this is better for me. These words, these actions are better for me now. We turn. And then we head down the road of gossip or lust or covetousness, whatever, whatever the sin may look like on the outside, it starts with pride. And it's kind of like the wildfires we see here in California. Unfortunately, we have the fire season in the summer, and this summer was so horrible. Watching the news and seeing just acres upon acres of lands just being demolished by these fires that were out of control. And then you watch the news and the newscasters will say things like, it's this dry underbrush and this, this, this drought we've been in for so many years and it's the Santa Ana winds. They're all contributing to these fires. But the thing is, is that's not what starts the fires. The winds and the underbrush and the drought did not start the fire. After the fire's out, the firefighters have to go and figure out where the fire started. And not only that, they have to figure out how it started. And they do most of the time, thankfully, right? And 95% of the time, wildfires are started by human beings, either by accident or on purpose. They are started by human beings. And so it is with pride. Every time we act out in disobedience, it starts with pride. We can trace that line back to pride. And since pride can manifest itself in so many different ways, it can be hard to detect. And we women um, have areas where we're more prone to be prideful that maybe aren't as easy to see. They're not that outward, boastful, self-promoting pride that we think of when we hear the word. And one way is disappointment. We've all probably been disappointed at some point in our lives or one, one or more times. 
And when we're disappointed, what we're saying is our expectations weren't met. I have these expectations. It didn't turn out that way. I'm disappointed. You're saying my expectations, God, were better than what you gave me. It's that turn, right? Uh, I just recently was convicted of this. Um, I have a I was here, again, at Navigating Motherhood, and in Navigating Motherhood, we have these wonderful teachers that come in, and they teach these great topics for these ladies to come here, and a lot of them have so many great godly truths. So we want as many women here every week as possible to hear these godly truths. And one week in particular, the attendance at my table was pretty low, and it had been a really good topic that I wanted these ladies to hear. And I voiced to one of my friends, I said, she said, how was your day? And I said, well, I, I'm a little disappointed. Some of my ladies didn't show up today. Seems right, right? It's a godly disappointment. And she said this, and it stopped me in my tracks. She said, I can see how you'd be tempted to be disappointed, but, and went on to kind of gently rebuke me. And I stopped and I said, that's, you know, that's, that's right. I mean, who am I to think that my expectations for that day are better than what God provided for that day and his master plan. Who am I? It knocked me off that pedestal. Or what about fear? Women, as women, we fear so much. We fear for our kids. We fear for our finances. We fear for the state of our state, the state of our country, where it's all going. We could go on and on about things that we can and do fear. And sometimes it seems so justified to be fearful of things that are fearful. Um, but that's when we turn to God in pride. Um, we're not trusting God that he is over all things. We can fall into thinking that there are corners of this life that he isn't seeing or paying attention to or maybe even doesn't have control over. And so we give in to that fear and we trust in that fear, thinking this fear will protect me. When we know God's word says that God is our protector, we turn to that fear. How about feeling sorry for yourself? Many times in life we're given circumstances that are less than desirable and it can be easy to throw yourself a pity party. Poor me, I'm in this situation. You know, maybe we're in a bad marriage or maybe we have rebellious children or grandchildren. Um, maybe our finances are in the tank. And we look around and we see people in thriving marriages. And we see people whose children are walking with the Lord and bearing fruit. And we see people who are prospering. And it can be easy to look at ourselves and say, poor me. But I think it goes without explaining that this is prideful. We're saying that our circumstances that we've been given by God are not good, and he gives us our circumstances for a reason, and that's a whole other topic for a whole different day. But we're saying that the circumstances that we think we should have are better than the circumstances that God has given us. And I know every year we read through the DBR, if you read, read through, uh, through the DBR with us here at Compass, you, you hit the book of Exodus pretty early in the year, and I don't know about you, but I... I always get frustrated with the Israelites, you know, chapter after chapter, the complaining, the whining, and you're just like, enough already, right? You're just like, just stop. But we're no different. We're no different when we throw that pity party. We're no different than the Israelites. Well, how about your prayer life? You know, one thing that is a big sign of pride is when we have a lack of a prayer life. When we are not praying regularly to God, it's, it's the equivalent of saying, I got this, I got this God, I got this day, I got this week, I got this month, year, however long it's been. You're depending on yourself and you're not putting your dependence on God and that's pride. Or maybe you are praying, 
but you're not confessing your sin. If you follow the Acts model of prayer, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, you're skipping that C, you are in pride. 1 John 1.8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We don't want to be deceived. Or maybe you are praying and your requests are heavy on the personal side and far too light on other people's needs. It's a sign of pride. Examine your prayer life. Where is it at? And find areas of pride. And we have such a great advocate to go to to help us with this, and that's God. We can go to God in prayer and ask Him, Lord, reveal to me where my pride is. Reveal to me where my pride resides. We can pray a scripture like Psalm 139, verse 23, 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous, you could substitute prideful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Our creator knows just where our pride resides and he will be faithful to lead us to it and then to help us flush it out because he wants it gone more than we do, much more than we do because we tend to cling to it. Well, after Absalom has heard these plans from Hushai and Ahithophel, he has this change of heart and we see him sway and go over to Hushai's plan. In 2 Samuel 17, 14, it says, and Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. And here in verse 14b is where we see God's providence on display. For Yahweh had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that Yahweh might bring harm to Absalom. While God's providence works to direct the mind of Absalom and he uses Absalom's ego to accomplish that, he's doing it for the good of David's life and David's, his plan for David's life. This is for the good of the overall plan of salvation through Christ if we're looking at it from the 30,000 foot view. But he's also opposing these men. He is opposing Ahithophel and Absalom for their pride. I mean, we see in that verse that he defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, bring harm upon Absalom. He's opposing them. And by the end of this chapter, we will see that Ahithophel ends up taking his own life because of all that goes down here. And Absalom has some pretty bad situations coming up as well. And things are gonna go down for both of these men. They are gonna fall hard. In James 4, 6, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So point number two on your outline is remember God is opposed to the proud. Remember God is opposed to the proud. Well, if we're in opposition to God, we are in a losing position. Um, Stephanie's gotten up here before and talked about how it's like, it's like being in a battle and you have a thousand soldiers and he's got you know, 500,000. He's going to win. There are no Vegas odds. There's no lottery odds. There's no just minuscule point that you will win. You're going to lose, period. And so when we are prideful and we're sitting on that throne that's rightfully God's, he's going to knock us off. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when and how, and it's the how that we really need to fear. We have a great example of this in the Bible, in the book of Daniel, with King Nebuchadnezzar. Some of you may be familiar with him. If not, he is a real king. His life is laid out in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. He was very, very prideful, and he ruled the land of Babylon. And 
he was just constantly boasting. He basically has pride on steroids, if you have to boil it down. Uh, but he has Daniel there, who is a man of God, and Daniel interprets dreams. And Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and Daniel interprets it for him. And in, I'm paraphrasing here, but he tells him, God is going to bring you down. God is going to humble you. Beware, it's coming. And Nebuchadnezzar kind of brushes it off. But in Daniel 4, verse 28 through 33, it says this, All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built in my, by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was dri driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. This is such a clear picture of what it can look like when God opposes pride. Now, I take my hair, skin, and nail pills every day, but I don't want hair like bird's feathers and nails like bird's claws, right? We don't want this. We should not desire this. And we see how this humbling does work, thankfully, in the life of King Nebuchadnezzar, because in verse 37, he says this, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol the hon and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. What a different man. We need to see pride the way God sees pride. Pride and haughtiness, it's referred to in the Bible quite often, but it's never referred to in a positive light, not once. The Bible calls the prideful scoffers. In Proverbs 21, 24, it says this, scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. That's Proverbs 21, 24. The Bible calls the prideful fools. In Proverbs 26, 12, it says this, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Proverbs 26, 12. The Bible calls prideful, that says that the prideful cannot be near God. In Psalm 138, verse six, it says, Though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Psalm 138.6. And the Bible says the prideful are unloving. We see in 1 Corinthians 13.4, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be considered by God to be a fool, a scoffer, um, unloving, and I definitely don't want to be not near God, to be far from God. So our only choice is humility. There's no other magic pill. There's no quick fix diet here. It's humility. It's been said every Christian has a choice between being humble and being humbled. And there's a big difference, right? In the example we saw in Nebuchadnezzar's life, we see God humbling someone, and that wasn't too pretty. But in the case of David's life, we see him humble himself. 
Carlin taught us back in chapter 12 that when David is rebuked by Nathan, he immediately repents and he turns to humility and that pride that got him in that situation to begin with, it, it fades away. We need to be like David. If we're asking God to show us where our pride resides, then the only prescription is immediate repentance and humility. In our passage today, we see how God responds to David's humility, even while that heavy hand of discipline is still on him. So we're going to pick up in verse 15. Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so have I counseled. Now, therefore, send quickly and tell David, Do not stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now Jonathan and Ahimeas were waiting at Enrogel. A female servant was to go and tell them, and they were to go and tell David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom. So both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Behurim, who had a well in his courtyard. And they went down into it. And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and, and scattered grain on it, and nothing was known of it. When Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, Where are Ahimeaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, They have gone over the brook of water. And when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. After they had gone, the men came up out of the well and went and told King David. They said to David, Arise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. Then David arose and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Then David came to Mahanim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan. <clears throat> and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. Now Absalom had set Amasa over the army instead of Joab. Amasa was the son of a man named Ithra the Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zeruiah, Joab's mother. And Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. When David came to Mahanim, Shobai, the son of Nahash from Rabbah and the, and the, the Ammonites, and Makir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gilidite from Rogalim, brought beds, basins, and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, and lentils, honey, and curds, and sheep, and cheese from the herd, for David and the people with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness." Well, we see how God provides this protection for David through this train of people to get this message to David, to get on the move. And even when it seems like the plan is going to be foiled, when Ahimeaz and Jonathan are going to be caught, these two unnamed you know, husband and wife swoop in and hide them in their well. God continues to protect David. But it goes even further. In those last few verses, you see this abundance of provisions that they're provided once they cross the Jordan. And you know, it, it's a long, long list, and you have to question, why, why did the author include all of this detail? It could have just said, it, it, they were given food and water, the end, right? But it just goes to show how abundantly God is giving them grace. And this is because of David. They were given beds after probably sleeping on the ground for weeks, maybe months. Bed is a huge comfort. 
They were given water, basins and earthen vessels, probably carrying an abundance of water. And I'm sure over this time of exile, they were not drinking their eight, eight ounce glasses a day that is recommended. The text says that they were thirsty. And then they were given this list of food. I mean, it goes on and on and on. I mean, this is not beef jerky and trail mix. It's not even a meal, it is a feast that they're provided by these people. But we know it ultimately comes from the Lord. We need to believe that God will give us this sort of grace when we choose humility too. So point number three is believe God gives grace to the humble. And this can be difficult at times. We can say we believe that God will give us grace, which is that undeserved blessing, right? But when the, road, the rubber hits the road, do, we actually, do our actions actually reflect this belief? You know, humbling ourselves before the Lord includes humbling ourselves before others. And sometimes we can be tempted to believe that if we humble ourselves before others, that we will be a doormat, or we may get walked all over or taken advantage of time and time again. And the enemy would love for us to believe this. The enemy would love for us to believe nothing, but if you humble yourself, you will get nothing. Because the enemy doesn't want us believing in God's promises. But it's just that. This is a promise. And if you were at church this weekend, Pastor Mike went over this. God's promises are, are they're just that. They're not going to be broken. He's not like our earthly fathers who break promises. He's not like me who promised my son that we would be playing in the sandbox the following week and had to break that promise. God's promises will not be broken. And we have such a great reminder in 1 Peter 5, 5 through 7. It says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Well, maybe you've been wronged pretty greatly by someone in your life. Maybe it's a friend, a family member, maybe even your husband. And God is asking you to forgive them from your heart. Not just say, I forgive you, but to truly forgive from your heart. Are you going to do it? Are you going to humble yourself and forgive that person? We have to remember that God humbled himself quite greatly to be a substitution for us so that we can be forgiven. You know, we women can often make excuses for our emotions. We're very emotional beings, aren't we? And, and just justifying sometimes like the anger or lashing out you know, that was warranted. But are we going to humble ourselves and apologize to those that are on the receiving end of that and ask for their forgiveness? This is so, so important because we're surrounded by people in our lives that may not be believers, our children, our grandchildren, who we're trying to point to Christ. Unbelieving husbands and friends, we're trying to point to Christ. And if we remain proud in our disobedience, we're doing the exact opposite. We're putting them away from Christ. Well. I was given the opportunity to see God's grace on display quite vividly one time in my life. A few years ago, we were going to sell our condo here in Elisa Viejo, and we were moving to a house. And so we were getting it ready to sell. We'd done some upgrades and things like that. It was going to go on the market within a week. And my husband comes home, and he says, you know what? I don't want to sell it anymore. I think I want to rent it out. And I was like, oh, like every... Every bone and molecule in my body just screamed no. 
I just, this was not what I wanted. I was done with this condo. I was ready to get rid of it. Um, I didn't want to have to deal with renters. I wanted to take the money out of the condo, put it in the new house. I had this huge plan and it was a great, great plan. And this just foiled that whole plan. And so I appealed to my husband and gave him some of my reasons for disagreeing, but the appeal was shot down. And I realized that God was calling me to submit. And so I did. It took about 12 hours, but within 12 hours or so, I felt at peace. I felt at peace with the decision. I'm just being honest. Um, and there was a peace and a calm over it, and I started seeing the positive of it. And so the next move was to find renters. And so you want good renters. You want people that are going to pay on time. You want people that are not going to trash your place. So that was my next thing I needed to do. And that afternoon, I get a knock on the door. And it's my neighbor. And they live in the next building over, and they're renters. And he has this look of kind of desperation on his face. And he says, you know, I know you guys are selling your condo, but would you, would you consider renting it? My landlord called this morning, and he has a balloon payment, and he can't make it. He has to sell by July. And we have to stay in this neighborhood because our daughter goes to the high school down the street. We live right up the street from the Elisa Nagel High School. And she walks to school, and we both work, and we need to stay in this neighborhood. Would you consider renting to us? I, I think my jaw was literally on the ground. I don't know, but I said, you know, I can't give you a definitive answer right now. I'll speak to my husband, but I think this can work. And I was just blown away by God's grace. That was so undeserved. I did not deserve that one bit. Not only that, it just kept going. They're amazing renters. They signed a two-year lease. They take care of the place like it's their own. They're just amazing. I was just astounded by God's grace. And it was because I did what he asked me to do. I humbled myself. So we need to remember that. Well, the title of our Bible study this year is Depending on God's Promises. What a great title that is. We need to just keep being reminded of that. And when it comes to pride, our holy and perfect God has promised to oppose pride. That is a promise. But he's also promised to give grace to the humble. I'm going to leave you with this poem that I think sums it up. It's by John Bunyan. He that is down needs fear no fall. He that is low, no pride. He that is humble ever shall have God to be his guide. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the book of 2 Samuel and just how far it's taken us and the lessons we have learned that we can apply to our lives. We thank you for David's example of humility that shows us this is what you desire from us, Lord. Help each and every woman in this room today flush pride from their lives. Point them to where it is so that they can attack it and get rid of it because we know you do not like it, you hate it, you oppose it, Lord, and we want to do right by you. Lord, we thank you for these women who are so diligent to study your word each and every week. And we pray for discussion time to be fruitful and for hearts to be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.